I'm Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. In recognition of Heritage Day on the 24th of September, today's program is a compilation featuring three guests who discuss heritage and the social contribution of arts and culture. First, we hear from Professor Natasha Erlang, who is a historian at the University of Johannesburg. We begin with historic moments of importance for women. I think probably the most poignant moment in recent memory is uh, the transition to democracy in 1994. And I mention this as being a poignant moment for women too. It's a poignant moment for everyone because it really was a game changer in terms of our recent history. We're 23-some years after that at the moment. The promises of our democratic transformation may not all have been realized, but probably in the last 20 or so years, this is the date that stands out for most people. And it was a very important moment in South Africa's history, I mean, having democracy and uh, having the right to, to vote for everybody from an equality perspective. Certainly tremendously important. Now, history gets made every day, but what criterion determine which events are recorded and passed on to the future generations? In other words, what would be remembered and what would we allow to be forgotten? Most professional historians will come up with a fancy formulation uh, which will tell you that history is made by the victors. So it's not at the, the point, victors. the victors, it's not at the point at which something is happening, that something becomes what a larger grouping of people would consider to be history. It's about dispositions that affect the way in which history plays out afterwards. I, I like to think, and... Um, um, this is what we like to do with students, that, that just about anything that happens in your life can be history. Um, and in this country, it's particularly great to think in that way because of long traditions of oral history in South Africa. But the way in which an event subsequently gets remembered has to do with who's in power at the time. And one of the, the, the really intriguing examples for me is the way in which the African National Congress since 1994 has been working on understandings of history which place it much more prominently in the struggle against apartheid in the period before 1994 than, you know, a whole bunch of fairly boring historians, myself included, would probably say was the case. And so it's subsequent to an actual train of events that events often come to have the prominence that they do. That's not including, of course, things like the Twin Towers in 2001, which I think for everyone, anywhere who's alive at the moment, would see as a game changer. You were talking about the event with the Twin Towers, mm. and I can remember the exact moment. I can remember what was happening, what was around mm. me, watching devastation on the TV screens and I felt that that was almost living history mm. when we were going through it I think that's exactly the kind of thing which I would say is the kind of the, when, when we can remember where we were on a particular day, those are the kinds of events which you can tell at the time are going to be 
game changer. So 1994, um, if you're the right generation, you'll remember exactly where you were when you heard that Nelson Mandela had been released from prison. Uh, going back a few generations, uh, people will remember where they were when they heard about the shootings in Sharpville. Um, you know, most of those people will be a lot older. People will remember where they were when the Twin Towers went down. And there are a couple of other events as well. Um, and those are the kinds of moments where we see change occurring or we see the seeds of something that's been bubbling up coming into existence and then things will never quite be the same again afterwards. Very true. We use different formats to preserve history. You mentioned from an African point of view, one of the elements that we're renowned for is about having a rich oral tradition. Mm -hmm. We've also got when streets are being named or renamed statues erected, museums choosing what is going to be housed in uh, those those museums with the, the curatorship, artwork, and from a storytelling perspective, either written, spoken, or even cinematic expressions. What role do you think that these touch points play in our world? I think that there are some very interesting observations that we can make about the way in which history gets uh, recorded, the way in which history gets converted into something that we might call heritage, where heritage has a particular meaning linked to something that we can leave. You know, heritage, we're talking about inheritance, but the idea is not just inheritance from the past. It's about looking forward. What do we leave for the generations that are coming after us? So what is it that we're leaving for the generations that are coming after us? I'm just thinking one of the things that struck me recently is Johnny Clegg performing his final concert, um, again, for South Africans of a certain generation. I think that some of his songs were really um, evocative. They were critically important. He has an international standing. But I've also watched um, videos of old, old footage of him dancing in Zululand in the 1970s, trying to learn the moves to dances. So even dancers themselves, the content of song lyrics can be things that um, get passed down from generation to generation. Some of the isikatamkunya that gets played in the hostels these days is um, full of words that have importance for people. Even um, our, uh, our President Zuma has been several times linked to the rather controversial uh, lyrics around Umshimi Wam. Um, and those words mean different things to different people. They signify emotions. They signify memories of what the past was like. And they have a really tenacious hold on people those kinds of uh, forms of history, much more so than the kind of book learning that we do a lot of in universities. And I, I think I mean, if I had a wish for seeing history go forward, I'd want to see people appreciate more the ordinary versions and the ordinary vehicles of history rather than the kind of stuff that comes over the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or, or what people associate with universities because there's so much power in that. And it almost seems to be power of expression, power of experience. If you've experienced it, it has a greater enrichment and seems to have more meaning to you as an individual than if you're just reading in black and white. 
what we've been talking about now has really been about personal experiences or person-to-person communication. But there's also aspects of things like institutional memory and institutional heritage. So if you go into an organization, you've got the culture of that organization. How do you think that we're able to keep an institutional heritage going? Well, it's an interesting question as well, and I'd say it's not necessarily that different. Generally speaking, in my historical research, I'm interested in a couple of things. I'm deeply interested in the, in the, in, in the politics of gender, in gendered power relations in the past. I'm interested uh, in African Christianity, um, and I'm interested in the intersection between Christianity and tradition. And one of the things that is very obvious is that if you look at institutions like some of the mainline churches or even some of the independent churches, you see institutional power coming to the fore as people reenact on a weekly basis the rituals of the church. So this can be in a small group. It can be one of the groups that's meeting on the copies in Johannesburg, um, some of the Shembi Nazarites. It can be, you know, in in the Anglican church close to you. It can be in one of the Grace Bible churches. But there is a weekly and monthly uh, institutionalized experience of faith that helps to transmit memory as much as anything written down can do that. Um, There are probably some spaces that don't do that, but you see the way in which students are institutionalized into university culture, for instance. The power of the institution acts through them. It's almost osmotic, so it reinforces the memory weekly or daily, depending on what institution you belong to, and you as individuals convey that to other individuals. I think that's a a really interesting Mm. concept. Now, South Africa, as we know, is an incredibly diverse society consisting of people whose original roots stretch the breadth of the globe. And in part, and, and based on what we've been talking about now, a person's present identity stems from their heritage, which comprises of, of histories, those shaped experiences and, and memories, family upbringings, cultural backgrounds, beliefs, as well as place being an important component. But heritage and identity are not fixed. They've got the potential to change as individuals are exposed to new experiences. Can you share with us some of the complexity involved in preserving history and heritage and simultaneously being able to create new traditions or or rituals? I'm probably one of those people who likes to see a more organic approach to preservation. So the kinds of things that excite me are when you get, let's say, a small urban community uh, putting up a mural to commemorate its history. They're doing so in ways that bring the private into contact, into conversation with the public in ways that large-scale heritage preservation moments don't really achieve. So for something to continue, it needs to be, I'm probably changing, I'm I'm shifting a bit here, I'm, I'm thinking through some ideas, it needs to be accessible. So one of the greatest travesties in the month between um, the two public holidays that are critically important for us, Women's Day in August and Heritage Day in September. 
The 1956 march on the Union buildings in Pretoria is commemorated by Women's Memorial, which is in the grounds of the Union buildings in Pretoria. But no one can get in to see that memorial. Um, for a variety of reasons, it's closed off to the public. Mostly security reasons are cited as why no one can go and see it. But it's not all that old. It was conceived in the late 1990s, early 2000s. It was commissioned by the state. There could have been some forethought about the fact that, well, if we want people to see it, we need to actually um, put it where they can access. And let's not put it behind a, a kind of a, put it in a place where a lot of security is necessary. And so it's like, on the one hand, you want to commemorate women. On the other hand, you stick them behind a fence and say, I'm, I'm talking metaphorically, you know, people can't look at this. It's not accessible to the public. And I, I doubt there are more than, than probably not many people in the country actually realize that there is this memorial to women. Um, and this is something that the state promotes every women's month um, around the 9th of August. And yet there's this monument that no one pays any attention to. At the same time, I have to say, I'm glad to see the Statue of Rhodes at UCT gone. I think that these things do open up wounds. It's not just particular to South Africa. All the protests and the um, clashes that occurred in Charlottesville in the States recently show the real power of this kind of public, um, monumental, monumental in the sense of commemorating very large things, but this is also a monument commemorating parts of history that, you know, a hundred years later not everyone is so happy commemorating or people feel it doesn't speak to their own understanding of their identity where they are in a particular moment. So I think there ought to be, you know, the problem with big monuments is that they're there to stay. And, you know, when someone new comes into power or when the public mood changes against them, you know, maybe they need to be redeployed. But sometimes when I think about the negatives, so looking at remnants of, of the old as reminders of, of our past, that, that potentially these reminders should almost be a, a warning to future generations of the mistakes that were made uh, in terms of a blot in humanity as not to repeat them as opposed to removing them totally and that there is no evidence. That was Professor Natasha Erlang, who is a historian at the University of Johannesburg, on today's special feature for Heritage Day. Hi, this is Lyra, South African Afro-Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Our next guest is Professor Nombeko Mpako, the Acting Director of the School of Arts at the University of South Africa and Chairperson of the Department of Art History, Visual Arts and Musicology. We start our conversation with the role of art education in youth development and conclude with an overview of some of South Africa's successful female artists. 
Most school curriculums, creative subjects like art, tend not to receive the same weighting as opposed to mathematics and language skills in terms of the importance of the role in youth development. But when we look at things like the World Economics Forum Future of Jobs report from 2016, interestingly, creativity ranks third on the top of the skills list needed by 2020, mm. critical thinking is second, and complex problem-solving is first. Given our changing world and the different types of skill sets required in the future, what skills do you consider that the arts develop? Well, the art develops the constructive thinking. I always say, I was actually saying that this morning with the teachers, that at primary school level, we are not teaching children to be artists, but we are educating children through art. So that is the point of departure. Then how do we do this? We develop various capabilities, such as constructive thinking. For example, today they were doing a sculpture using found materials, and they had to think about what materials I have to use and, and, and how am I going to put these materials together. And also, constructive thinking is what we do all the time, because before you do anything, you construct it in your mind. I also quote the, 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 the book as a man thinketh that says that everything that we do is as, a, is as a result of our thoughts. So constructive thinking is the first one. And then the second one is imaginative. Because you have to imagine, imagine things for things to happen, like dreaming. And then there's also sympathetic understanding, which is empathy. When children are working with materials, they, they develop that empathy. If he's making a, a, a child, she or he is making a, a, a model of her mom, or even of a doll that is a baby, they start thinking about how I can handle this baby and how I can uh, handle my mother that I am making because I'm passionate about. I remember in the last month when we were doing the month thing at UNISA, we invited Tuli Matonsela. And Tuli was saying, the problem with our upbringing of the children is that we buy boys guns and cars and then we buy girls dolls and then we wonder why our uh, um, male uh, counterparts are not able to be passionate and compassionate about child uh, bearing. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, uh, of development capabilities that you are developing of children confidence, assertiveness and, and everything else you can think of. But we are not really focusing at primary school. And those yeah. are important life skills to have yes. because besides having your functional mm. components mm. of understanding mm. the subject matter, whether mm. it's maths or English mm. or Zulu, if you don't have the, the gel which can go in between, which gives you those social and, and life skills, you're mm. not going to function as a whole mm. person. Yes, that's true. For example, I just want to make a, a reference to, in addition, that mm, uh, the arts teach children to make good judgment about qualitative relationships, unlike much of the curriculum in which correct answers are the ones that are ruling. Uh, for example, in art, we teach them that you can find there are different ways, like that term, that there are different ways of killing a cat. There's not one good answer. 
you can mm. find ways of dealing with it. So it's yeah. all about creativity yes, at exactly. the end of the day. Mm. What do you think needs to be done to include art programs in the curricula more intensively? Uh, you've heard that South Africa has the best policies. Yes. We do have a policy on that art must be taught at all schools. During um, the 1994, that was the, 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 the reconstruction and development programs of the ANC, one of the decisions that was taken was that art must be made compulsory from uh, preschool up to grade nine, meaning that all the children that are at primary school must learn arts, not just art. The curriculum 2005 referred to the now creative art discipline as arts and culture. It was incorporating all the four arts, music, visual arts, dance, and drama. So as long as 1998, these uh, uh, art uh, uh, subjects were implemented, but the problem is not with the policy, is with the implementation strategy. Now, the problem is that because of the legacy of the apartheid, that we did not have art education in black schools, we have shortage of suitably qualified teachers. And now, for the government to bring this art subject as an equity process without looking at how we're going to develop the, the implementation of them. For example, the infrastructure is a, a serious problem. If you look, compare the black schools and the so-called model C schools that used to be the government schools for whites during apartheid regime, they've got infrastructure, they've got studios uh, for teaching art, they've got uh, libraries, they've got everything. And, then, and they also have suitably qualified teachers in our black schools, we do not have suitable qualified teachers because of that legacy. And now the, the, the new uh, policy says all children must be exposed to art, must teach art from grade, uh, 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 grade one or, or, or grade R up to grade nine. And who's going to teach it? And that actually brings me to my project that I'm doing. The project that I'm doing, I'm trying to actually... Um, uh, um, Intervene. It's an intervention strategy that is not going to make further damage by saying let's take teachers and put them to school like the Loveday model because the Loveday model was taking teachers out of school for two years and they go to Loveday College and study. We can't afford to do no, that. We need the resources. So, so then we have to now look at a, a, a schools-based uh, professional development that is going to assist the teachers whilst they are still in their jobs. I think it's a noble initiative and definitely something we need and looking mm. at creative mm. innovation mm. programs yes. Uh, yes. to achieve that so that the day job gets done mm. but also we're being able to enrich people so that they're equipped with preparing their lessons mm. and, and teaching the students. Now art formats are incredibly diverse from painting to song mm. lyrics, sculptures, architecture, fashion. You spoke about mm. performance mm. arts with mm. theatre, mm. dance, textiles, to even body art with mm. tattoos. 
But they encapsulate expressions, they reflect concerns of the day, and sometimes they may be controversial to emphasize a point. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us some examples of how women's issues have been depicted in art? Well, what comes to mind is the... The, uh, the artist that inspired me when I was doing undergraduate yes. was Judy Chicago who was a, is a, uh, an American feminist who was using non-conventional uh, material to make art because you know before art used to be called fine art and fine art was referring to the painting, sculpture, drawing to some extent, photography to some extent, and printmaking. And as a result, every other art that is not that type of art would be referred to as craft. And the Africans were always grouped together with oceanic and eastern uh, uh, countries as primitive people because our art sometimes was not meeting the specifics so not of using the, the mediums yeah, that yeah. the fine arts had so judy chicago was one of the first that i can remember because i studied here when i was doing my undergraduates in the 80s that tried to challenge the stereotype and change uh, what was conceived as art and uh, she made an installation or a triangular table in which he was honoring the important women in history. So he was actually recording the history of the Western uh, women that were famous. And even that art, even our days, is still one of the art that is acknowledged. And then I'm thinking nowadays we've heard uh, uh, about or Helen Sebiti, who are uh, uh, South African artists, and that uh, would fall in that category of my age, or a little bit uh, older than me. But then now uh, we have the younger generation that have even pushed the stereotype even further. Who, who comes to mind is um, Mary Sibande, the, the artwork of Sophie, in which is um, honoring uh, the domestic uh, workers and, and remaking a reference to her own grandmother and the females. Is she the lady who utilizes Victorian yes, dress? Yes. Sophie is the name of the, the artwork that she started with. And then again you get Nandi Pam Dambo. Nandi Pam Dambo is also looking at the issues of identity and she's also challenging the stereotypes uh, such as patriarchal belief systems as well. So um, th th there's quite a lot of them that we can think of, but in the interest of time, <laughs> I will not mention all of them. And how do you think, because they're bringing those issues to mm. the fore and it's not in, say, a traditional format of black and white where mm. we are reading it or we're listening to it on the airwaves or mm. Mm. watching it on the TV mm. screens, but how do you think that these works of art have helped influence attitudes and change stereotypes? I think they are. For example, another uh, artist now that comes to mind is Zanele Moholi, who is actually addressing a current issue of a hate crime, the change where people in the township, uh, if they are gay and lesbians, they are sometimes they are killed. And the, we see these things happening nowadays. I do think that the, the attitudes of the society are changing. 
And uh, these young women, especially these young and up-and-coming artists, have been able to be bold enough, unlike us when we were uh, uh, younger artists and students, we were not bold enough because we practiced during the apartheid regime. But these ones are very bold, and, and it is really making significance because, for example, Zanir Mohol is really making a huge significance with her artwork. And in that boldness, female artists are obviously mm. bringing forward mm. not just issues that are confronting a woman, mm. a woman are being challenged mm. by, but they're also providing a female perspective to those mm. views. Firstly, do you think that, uh, that we've got enough female artists to express and ensure that women's perspectives are being expressed mm. and seen not just by women, mm. but also by men too? Yeah. I think uh, things are really changing, especially uh, when you look at the uh, national competitions that you find in South Africa, like Atelier, Sasso, Standard Bank, quite a few of them. The criteria for selecting best artists is not in favor of any gender. It's encompassing everybody. And as a result, in the last uh, few, even this one for Sassol, which I was a judge, it was a woman who actually uh, won the first prize. And guess what she used? She used the Sishwe material to present an album of her family, which is again is something very unconventional. But it was found to be one of the best works. And I think last year or the year before, it was Nel Marie Dupree, who is working with robots, which is also something new. She creates these robots, and then they, they work and do things and get tired and get anxious and get depressed. So human and emotions exactly. that they experience. So basically, we, we've seen quite a few, and I think South Africa is actually uh, uh, doing well when it comes to these competitions. That was Professor Nambeko Mpako, the Acting Director of the School of Arts at the University of South Africa and Chairperson of the Department of Art, History, Visual Arts and Musicology for today's special feature on Heritage Day. Hi, my name is Yvonne Chakachaka and I'm UNICEF and Rollback Malaria Goodwill Ambassador. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in the struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, a program against social ills such as racism, socio-economic class division and gender-based violence. Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amalia Balka every week on this day at this time. The last guest in today's feature is multi-award-winning singer, composer and performer, Dr. Sibongile Kumalo, who addresses contributions of the arts towards humanity, placing emphasis on cultural, social and educational contexts. You're a founding member of the Performers' Organization of South Africa, the Association of South African Businesswomen and Arts. You sit on the board of the Southern African Music Rights Organization and have served on the boards of the National Arts Festival, Grahamstown, and among others, Opera Africa. Does taking an integral part in so many important organizations and associations come with the territory of a person becoming an international performer, 
or is it something that has grown on you along the years and is part of your identity? I think it's safe to say that somehow one has gotten involved with these different organizations simply because it became expected that one would contribute something to 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 one's community but some people don't i know some people yeah i'm a sucker for punishment i don't know <laughs> some people don't now, i i guess just seeing especially my dad my my mom was a nurse and and, and a mother and a housewife but my father was was a big champion of community involvement. He believed very firmly that when you exposed a child to, to the arts, you're not developing the next big thing in that particular field that they were training in, but you were developing an all-rounded human being who would be a contributor to society, who would be a good citizen, who would be an empathetic person. Because, say, you're in a choir or a dance troupe or whatever other group you're in, of necessity you become sensitive to what other people's needs are because you have to listen, right? And so coming from that kind of background, I guess I found it an imperative dimension of my life to be part of something so that I can contribute something to that. I guess the thing also is that you have to open your mind to new possibilities. And I guess that's what's that the being 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 able to to join in like that forces you to grow. It forces you to keep an open mind. Being able to say yes to more things than you're, you're saying no to also just says, okay, I'm, I've said yes. What am I bringing into the space? What am I bringing? What am I saying? What am I contributing into the space? And and it, it allows you an opportunity to learn. You have to learn. You have to. You have to learn. I am a, a full supporter of lifelong learning, learning an yeah. absolute advocate, and I see yeah. it in, in every dimension. But being able to view aspects, all aspects of your industry, to understand how all those intrinsics mm. work, how they fit together, having that broad perspective. Yeah. Do you think that we as a country are doing enough to actually educate the next generation of our citizens, especially women in underprivileged communities? That's a question that always gets me into trouble because I get so angry. There's a lot of lip service that's paid to 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 the education um, of our children generally. There's very little arts education in our schools for our children. And I think part of the challenge with that, in particular with regards to arts education is that arts has been seen as a we talk of creative industries now we don't talk of arts because our country is embroiled in so many social issues right every every sphere every aspect of of our development of our education is is linked to social development and how we create jobs for people there's an economic aspect there's always an economic yes there's always an economic impetus to things i do and that's that's okay i suppose that's necessary i have to say though on what you've you've said to me uh, in terms of the community involvement the way that being in a choir forces you to listen to other people it has that community connection it's got a bonding effect and I, until this conversation now, I've never thought of music in that way. I've never thought about that type of connection, which so vividly has come through in the conversation. Arts education 
is a life skill. It's about empowering children. It's about equipping children with an ability to do certain things. There are studies, anecdotal evidence of how when 14, 15-year-olds are exposed to music education in this particular instance, they develop cognitive, a cognitive understanding of so many other things. The critical thing here also that we need to keep in mind, Dr. Malka, is that when a child is taught, say, a song, they have a need to stand on that stage in front of their peers and do well, right? There's no way you're going to stand there and make a fool of yourself. You cannot. If you're an actor, if you're a dancer, if you're a, a painter, you want to be seen to do well. And you go there to do well. And that experience translates to other school subjects. So a child who does well in music will do well in mathematics, will do well in, in science. I know this. I've seen, I saw this with my own peers, with, my own, with they, the kids I grew up with. They have confidence. They have confidence to go out there, to stand out there and, and, and be okay with, with themselves, with what they're doing. But importantly, they strive for excellence. And that's one of the big benefits of arts education. They understand what it means to be an achiever. They understand also what it means to be a thinker because you need to find solutions to, to how to get these results, mm -hmm. right? What we are churning out are not thinkers. We're churning out artisans, and there's nothing wrong with that. The artisans, we need artisans, but not everybody is going to be an artisan. Nobody, not everybody thinks that way. Not everybody understands that one plus one is equal to two. Many of us understand that, yeah, one plus one is equal, to, is equal to two, but perhaps you can put it differently. You can, instead of putting the, the numbers parallel to each other, how about you put them at an angle? What does that give you? It's not true. It's not quite 11. So the mind expands. That's so right. We've been limited by this linear thinking, totally. which means that you cannot derive new solutions if you're going through in a blinkered approach. And, and, and that's what arts education does. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, in our special feature in the lead-up to Heritage Day on the 24th of September.